Father, we trust you. Um, we have to trust you. We are not perfect at it. In fact, oftentimes we're not very good at it at all. Uh, but even our trust in you is an act of your work. It is you who produces obedience in us and our desire and ability to trust you is an act of your spirit to produce in us something that's good for us and will benefit us and will glorify you. And so we look to those benefits and we think, what, what do we gain from you working in us, God? And we gain all the promises of God, which find their yes in Jesus Christ. And we find peace, and comfort, blessings that are promised, encouragements and strength to continue to run the race with endurance that you have called us to run and to finish that race. And so, Lord, give us the courage and strength and the fortitude to step into today and the rest of this week with Christ as our strength. And we desperately need you to work in us now to prepare us for that battle and to prepare us for that race. So help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy 4, 6. So there is um, there's a difference between preaching to you and doing one-on-one discipleship with you. So if I stand up here at the pulpit and you sit in those chairs and I preach God's word to you, you receive it and you can, you know, it's, it's up to you how seriously you take the preaching and how you apply that preaching and teaching and like, you know, the accountability that's on you after the sermon. It's very different than if I were, if you were to sit in my office with me and we were to have a one-on-one conversation and I were to teach the word of God to you and hold you directly accountable to the things that I'm telling you. Because then the next time I see you, you can be like, hey, did you, did you work on that thing we talked about or something like that? Whereas when, when I'm preaching to the masses and you're one of the masses and you're just sitting there, you can kind of maybe receive it all, not, maybe not pay attention to half of it, maybe not accept most of it, or just kind of it goes in one ear and out the other. I mean, you, or you could just really absorb and be like, oh, I'm really going to live this. It's up to you. There's less accountability. And so what's kind of what's happening here in uh, 1 Timothy is Paul has been teaching Timothy. Now, this, all this matters in, to Timothy directly. Paul's been speaking directly in a one-on-one manner to Timothy. And he continues to do so. But now he's saying, let's make this available for everybody. Like, and this is the point that he gets to in verse 6. Or one of the points that he's making in verse 6. Is the importance of this one-on-one between him and Timothy expanding to the congregation. And then there's an opportunity for accountability for the entirety of the body then. And so we'll see Paul make that transition. And it's an important transition. And what he's, he, he will specifically tell Timothy what he must do. So even though Paul is now going to tell Timothy, this is for the whole church, make sure the whole church knows this, he's still speaking directly to Timothy. And the, and the thing is, though this is now a wide message for everybody, Paul is specifically more in a one-on-one type of one-on-one discipleship attitude or disposition. Paul is telling Timothy, this is what you have to do, Timothy. And if you do this the church will benefit. And what he has to do is what we'll see. And one of the things that, that, that comes from this text is how important the pastor or the elders or the teacher's role in the church is for the growth and development and maturity in the rest of the body of Christ. Basically, the health of the body is dependent on the growth of its leaders. Now, that's not an axiom. That's not like an absolute truth. That doesn't mean that the body can't grow if the leaders aren't growing. Because you could have a church leader or pastor or preacher or teacher or elder or whatever who isn't growing and the people in the church can still grow. So that can happen. But that's not God's plan. That's not how God wants it to be done. That's not his order for the church. God's order for the church is the leadership are in a place of leadership because they're the kind of men who are growing at either a specific rate or at a specific place so that they can teach 
and lead the congregation, teach the congregation doctrinal truth, and lead the congregation, lead the congregation biblically in the decisions that they make and the ministries that they do and in the counseling that's taken care of and the discipleship that's done and so on and so forth. So the congregation doesn't need a healthy, growing pastor for them to specifically grow individually. But if that's not happening, you're going to have problems in the church. And God's order and structure for the church is that the leaders are growing. So, so you can kind of see that play out here as Paul's instructing Timothy specifically how he must be. And then he's saying, now that you get this, Timothy, put this, in verse 6 he says, put this before the people. And so what we'll see today is ultimately the importance of growing doctrinally as like an increased theological understanding. Like understanding theology, understanding who God is, understanding all the doctrines in Scripture. Now I know not all of us can know all of the doctrines and not all of us can know all the doctrines perfectly. Certainly we don't. Um, I have a book in my office called All the Doctrines of the, in Scripture. And it's like, Small print, it's like that thick. And I'm like, that's a lot of doctrines. So, I mean, I don't even think I could identify every single doctrine in that book. If you just said, tell me all the doctrines in the Bible, I'd probably miss half the book. You know, there's so many specifics in Scripture. There's so much to know. And we'll touch on that a little bit later. But there's so much to know, it's impossible to know it all. But that shouldn't be a negative thing. That's a beautiful thing. That just shows us the infinite greatness of God that he writes for us scripture that is just a glimpse into his eternal infinite glory and knowledge and mind and yet the book itself that he gave us is inexhaustible and so it's important that we understand his book you know like if I if I go away for the week and I have somebody watching my house and I give them specific instructions on how to watch my house, don't you think that the instructions that I give them will be massively important to their success in taking care of my home? So if I've got an animal at my house, I'm like, this animal needs to eat this time of the day, this many times, you need to do these things for them. If that doesn't happen, that person's going to have a problem in my home. If they don't know the security code in my house, they're going to have a problem in my home. So they need to listen to the instructions and follow them, and that makes life actually a lot easier. Even if things are hard, it's way more manageable when you're listening to instructions and you know what needs to take place. And the, the Bible is God's instruction for us. It's more than just instruction, but that's what it is. It's instruction for us. And inside the, the, the instructions are, are truths or what we call doctrines, theological truths that create the foundation for the instructions. So the instructions look like do this or do that or don't do this or don't do that and make sure this happens and make sure that happens. And then scripture explains to us why. Because of these foundational truths. Because Christ is fill in the blank. Because you are fill in the blank. Because God does this or that. And we do it for this reason. So we, we get doctrine by understanding the wholeness of scripture. Understanding the instructions and the directions and understanding the meaning and the foundations and the explanations and the reasons and the connections between texts. And we put all these pieces together and we create a doctrinal truth. And those doctrinal truths usually stem from several scriptures in different places that we connect together that make sense together. And because that's a difficult and challenging thing, there are people in the world who have doctrinal differences and disagree on certain things. And so one of the important realities of scripture and of the church is that we agree doctrinally, that we are united in doctrine, and that will never be perfect. We'll never be perfectly united and in perfect agreement because we're all growing and learning new things, all of us. Therefore, the goal, though the goal is perfect unity and agreement in doctrine, the reality of church life is a constant interaction with the body of Christ and the word of God in study and in prayer to discover what God's word means and to discover it together and to grow together. And when we disagree, that we work toward agreement. Paul 
does talk in Scripture about agreeing in everything. And he doesn't mean always agree all the time. What he means is you're working towards agreement. There are absolutely doctrinal disagreements in this room right now. There's no question about that. And the key isn't that I say this is the way it is, so you just believe it. No, I want you to understand it. I want you to come along. I want you to be able to teach it. I want you to know it so well you could teach it to your children without needing my help. And so you have to grow in doctrine. And in order for you to grow in doctrine, I certainly have to grow in doctrine. And so we're all constantly growing in doctrine. And this is important, and it is required for continued faithfulness to Jesus because, and this is important, what you believe about God affects the way you live. What you believe about God affects the way you live. So we're in verse 6, and Paul says, If you put these things before the brothers, so what are these things? These things um, refers to everything that Paul has written to Timothy and does include everything Paul's going to write to Timothy. And he says, if you put these things, the things I've taught you, so we talked about you know, the one-on-one between Paul and Timothy, now he's saying, put it before the brothers. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. This is one of the few times uh, where we see an author in Scripture convey the importance of circulating their letters among believers. And what this does is it shows that Paul believes that what he's writing to Timothy is the authoritative word of God. Paul is telling Timothy, make sure the rest of the church hears what I'm telling you. Meaning Paul understands that, that this is the Holy Spirit's work to communicate truth from Paul, or to Paul, and through Paul, to Timothy, and to the church. And that's always the order in which it goes. I mean, I didn't wake up one morning and I just knew the Bible. Somebody taught it to me. And I had to learn a lot on my own. And you have the same experience. Someone taught you the Bible and some of it you learned on your own. And even the stuff you learned on your own wasn't you. That was the Holy Spirit, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 4, somewhere in the Corinthians. Now I got to know. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This idea that you are smart because you know something that someone else doesn't know is so arrogant, right? So arrogant. And, and as a preacher, it's my responsibility, it's literally my job to know more than you. And if I don't know more than you, I have to make myself know more than you. I gotta dig into scripture. I gotta know. I gotta pray. I gotta learn. I gotta read. I gotta study. I gotta ask questions. I gotta talk to people smarter than me. I gotta ask people who, who, who maybe don't know things that I do know if they know something about something else that I don't know about. Like the idea that, that you have some knowledge to share is, is, is nuts. That's just. It's just not a reality. Everything you know you've learned from somebody else. And if you haven't learned it from another person, it was taught to you by God through the Holy Spirit and his word. The Bible taught you. You're, you don't know it. Scripture knows it. And it's informing you. The Spirit is informing you of its truth. So no matter what, all of us have nothing to brag about and nothing to boast about. Even the most insanely intelligent theologians in the history of the world have nothing to boast about. So I love doctrine and I love to understand doctrine. I love to teach doctrine. I want to know more and I want to, as I learn more, I want to teach you. And that can get me excited, but I don't ever want to for a moment think, oh, this church really needs me. You don't need me. I could die today and you'd all be just fine. You need Christ and his word and each other. And if we do this together, we will grow together. And I will say this about our church specifically. We are doing this together and we have done this together and it's an incredibly enjoyable journey to learn with you 
to be together on Wednesday nights and Thursday nights and Friday nights and Sunday mornings. We're learning together in so many ways. I mean, think about, we took a text in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we explored it, and we realized, you know, that there's a lot more here to explore that is important to understanding 1 Timothy 4 a couple weeks ago. So we, in our Wednesday night Bible study, dug into Hebrews chapter 5, 11, through 612 just so that we could continue together as a body growing in our understanding of doctrine and truth and so it's happening here and it's enjoyable and i don't see or get a sense from anybody an arrogance of knowledge and so at the moment it's incredibly satisfying to be your shepherd i love it you guys love growing love learning love listening and it's enjoyable to teach you. And to see fruit from the teaching is so satisfying. Amen. So, the reason that it's, vital, that it's vital that the entire church understands what Paul is teaching Timothy is so that the church can grow together and specifically in what Paul says is good doctrine. Good doctrine informs your mind and your thoughts, right? It's information. Good doctrine is learning information. And good doctrine begins with a mental awareness. Someone tells you something maybe you don't know, or it's a, it's a doctrine or an idea you know about, but you don't understand it completely, and they teach you something you don't know about it, and that teaching has to come from the Word of God. And as they do that, you learn. And that's a mental awareness, and that... That, that mental awareness moves into mental acceptance. So you've got this information in your brain that's new, and then you determine that you're going to believe it. And if that doctrine is actually good, and it's accompanied by genuine faith, then that doctrine will move from mental acceptance to actual life application or practice. Meaning the value of good doctrine is not just having a sharp theological mind. But to practice God-honoring righteousness so to glorify God and to gain confidence and assurance of your salvation in Christ. Or another way of saying it is what I just said. What you believe about God directly affects the way you live. Your doctrine informs your life. It informs your actions. It informs your attitude. Joy is a doctrine. And we talk about how important joy is. Talked about joy last week, the importance of joy. And we look at scripture and what does scripture teach us about joy? That Christians should be filled with joy. Not happiness, not fleeting moments of you know, happiness, but a foundational, structural, firm, planted joy that is immovable because it's in Christ. And that's why James says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Meaning, no matter what storm comes into your life, if joy is rooted in Christ, you are and will not be shaken from your joy. So that's a doctrine, right? And then if I teach you about that doctrine, it's going to affect the way you live, right? And if I tell you, well, hey, look at the Israelites, they served God obediently but without joy and God called that disobedience because it lacked joy and gladness in their heart for God they were doing it simply out of action and not out of satisfaction for the Lord they weren't doing it with the right heart and so God punished them for it so now that that's new information now now my doctrine of joy is formulating stronger and it's making more sense and now I with that information I go live my life and something hard happens to me today I go oh that's right Joy is unshakably firm because it's planted and rooted in Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So joy cannot be taken from me no matter how hard this event in my life actually is. And so you see, that's just an example of how like solid, good, and sound doctrine informs the way you live. And, and, and notice that within that doctrine is a little bit of teaching about who God is the reality of the unshakable, un immovable uh, nature of Jesus Christ, the immutability of Christ, he does not change. And because of that, my joy is firm. So who God is in Christ informs how I live my life in joy. The relationship between the way you live, the, the way you think, your attitude, your disposition, your heart, your mind, all of that is directly connected to what you believe about God. So your doctrine is so important. Amen. 
So this shows us why it is important then for the teachers in the church to teach not only sound doctrine, but to teach biblical and gospel depths. Do you hear that difference? I don't want to just teach Bible truths. I want to teach deep Bible truths. I want to take you deep into the Word of God. I want, you take, I want to take you deep into the gospel. Now, I have been told before, it's, your teaching's too deep. It's too deep. Okay? So I'm going to respond, to, and, I don't, and, and I'll just say there's no one in this room who's ever said that to me. So, and, and, and I'm not bringing this up to create an argument so that I can answer that argument. I'm bringing it up for a very specific person, or a very specific reason, sorry. Uh, and let me explain what that reason is. The reason that I bring that up is because my response to it's too deep is that it has to be deep. And, and here's my, here's my uh, response to this idea that it's too deep is I don't believe you. If you told me your messages are too deep, I would say, I think, you're, I think you're lying to yourself. Because you have a job that you go to every day, and you do your job. And your job is harder than you think it is. You're just used to it. I could not go to your job and do your job. I had a friend come over to our house yesterday and she was explaining her job to us and, I, and things that were going on and I was asking questions and I was like, I could never do this. I could learn it. It'd probably take me two years to figure it out and after a couple of years of figuring it out, I still wouldn't be as good as them at it. They're smarter than me. You know? You guys are smart people. You're not dumb. So it's not too deep. Depth is not the problem. The real problem, and this is what people don't know how to express, they're using the word deep. Depth is not the problem. The problem is, as we discover more truths in Scripture, the, the, the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, He will, through God's Word, change your paradigms. That's, what he's, that's what's happening. You're getting a shift in paradigms. You have a specific way of thinking about God, and that is a very important reality to you. And you have the set perspective on who God is and then a teacher comes in and goes actually I'm going to take that perspective you have about God I'm going to tell you that it's wrong I'm going to show you in scripture what is actually true about God and now you're forced to change your paradigm about the nature of the very creator of the universe your creator and the one you serve and live and die for that's a that's a big change in someone's life so when that takes place in a Sunday morning and we adjust your paradigms and shift your paradigms about who God is of course it's going to it's going to feel like a little overwhelming. And, and, and your response is going to be, that's just maybe too much. Maybe, not, maybe deep isn't the right word. Maybe it's just too much. And here's the thing. I'm going to say, I still disagree. I don't think it's too much. Here's the reality. And I'm, and I'm addressing these specific logistics of how we do church on Sunday morning and how I preach and why I do this. Because Paul is telling Timothy to bring these things before the people. And so I'm bringing these things before you. I'm explaining to you the process of what's going on, why I preach the way I preach, and why I say the things I say, and why I refuse to get surfacy in my sermons. And even if the church was filled with brand new baby believers, yeah, we would address a lot of surfacey doctrine just as much, but I would still go deep because we have to. So here's, here's what's really taking place. And here's my response. If someone says, well, still, the paradigm shifts are too much for me. I say, I, I don't think that's true. Because you can individually and specifically manage how you endure my preaching. So everyone in this room is, a, is at a different place in their walk with Christ. Maybe you're not even a believer. Maybe you don't actually have a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Your faith isn't in Christ and your next step and your only step between you and between heaven and hell for you is to believe in Christ. Okay, then there's, you know, young believers who just got saved or maybe they're really immature and they don't have a lot of knowledge and then, you know, it goes on and on and on and there's a, a whole spectrum of different types of believers all the way up to the very mature believers have been saved for years and years and years and know a lot of information or whatever and then at the other end of the spectrum you have Jesus, perfect maturity, perfect knowledge, and all things. And 
If I'm going to preach a sermon, I want everybody to glean from that sermon. I want everyone to grow and gain from the preaching of God's Word. So I have to go at least deeper than the deepest person in the room. So I have to, you know, if we think about it in terms of digging, and I know I've kind of maybe shared this analogy in the past, but it's so important. I think it's so good. If you think about it, every Sunday you come to church with a shovel and you're ready to dig with me. And I bring a shovel too. And we start digging. And maybe in terms of knowledge and doctrinal truth, you're about uh, two feet deep. Okay? You've been saved for maybe five years. You've been learning a lot of things. You probably realize maybe you don't know that much. You know you need to learn more. You're a couple feet deep. And then there's other people in the church who are like 10 feet deep or maybe 15 feet deep. And these people have been digging for a lot longer. They know a lot more truths. There's a lot more information in their brain. And that those truths have transferred to the life and they're working on obedience to Christ in those truths. And so if I just dig two feet to that person who's at two feet and I go, hey, there you go. I, I just met you where you're at. Do you feel good now? They're going to go, yeah, I feel great. Because it's easy for me to stand up here and tell you things you already know. Because then you can go, ah, thanks for the reminder, Pastor Mark. I feel great today. Guess what? The Christian life is never, ever, in any way, shape, or form, ever described in Scripture as comfortable. Never. Never comfortable. There isn't an ounce of comfort in Scripture except in Christ. Circumstantial comfort does not exist for the believer. Our comfort comes in knowing that regardless of the circumstance, we have Christ. So, I, so when I meet you at two feet, I'm going to go, I'm glad to meet you here. I'm super excited that you're feeling encouraged right now because you're going to need that encouragement and joy when I go a little deeper and you have to come with me. So let's dig one more foot. And we dig another foot deeper and you come down to the three feet with me and you go, whoa, I didn't know that. Well, yeah, it's pretty cool, huh? And trust me, when we get to like five or ten feet deep, you're going to see all these things that we're talking about really start to come together and formulate this, this picture and, and this reality about who God is and who we are and the reality of the world and life and scripture and whatever and eternity and infinite nature of God and all that stuff. It all start coming together and clicking. You're going to love it and you get the people excited about digging deeper. But, but if I take that person and I throw them off the three-foot cliff down to the 20-foot. They're going to break their ankle. And they're not going to want to walk again or dig again. So my encouragement to people is, as we start digging down in Scripture, is that you dig with me. And when you get to the place where you're like, this is where I'm at, say two feet deep. Okay, I'm going to tell you, keep digging. Dig with me a little further. Let's go a little deeper. You got to grow. You got to learn. Got to be challenged. Got to be, it's going to be uncomfortable, but we got to go a little deeper. Okay? But I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to keep digging because there are people who, are, who need more. They need to dig deeper too. So I got to keep going down and keep digging deeper. But you, you feel comfortable, a little uncomfortable because you're a little deeper than you're used to. But you're okay to just stay there. Get what you can out of the depth that you can go and let me continue to go deeper for people who need it. That way, the whole spectrum of believers in the church get addressed and we all grow in doctrine and learn together. And that way, also, these, deep, these believers who are down here also get the encouragement they need. They're not down there going, well, you're never going to come talk to me. I'm not just going to sit down here and know things and just never grow. i got to grow too, so i got to come down and teach them too. And they go, oh, and then they're encouraged and go, we're going to take you deeper too. And then those people who are way up high can look down and go, oh, man. And then the people at the bottom go, you should come down here. It's so much fun. There's so many cool doctrines to learn about. And then there's this growing faith and encouragement united together in the family of Christ, and we all grow together. So that's my response to it's too deep. No, it's not. It's a shift in your paradigm. It's deeper than you're used to, and it's hard to change what you already believe. But that is Christianity. Amen. The whole point of your faith is that it grows. So to just accept and believe that you just want to hear things that you already know or hear things that are easy, well, everybody wants that, and they leave churches like this to go get that. And that isn't going to get you anywhere. Because you know what Jesus calls that in, in his letter, in his revelation to John? He calls it lukewarm. And what does Jesus do with lukewarm? He spits it out. It's comfortable. 
If you're comfortable in your faith, if you're comfortable in your spiritual growth, if you're comfortable with what you know right now, it's time to get uncomfortable, and it's time to stay uncomfortable, and you're going to stay uncomfortable until you die. But that does not mean, hey, as a Christian, your life's going to stink forever. Get used to it. Too bad, so sad. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Scripture is saying. Because if joy is a doctrine that's also true, if pleasure in Christ is a doctrine that's true, if hope is real and faith is hope, then I get total satisfaction and joy in the uncomfortability of my growth in Christ. So it's not a miserable Christian life. It's a satisfied and joyful Christian life that needs to be uncomfortable. And let's be honest, comfort is the most dangerous sin in the United States of America. Comfort is our idol. I'm speaking about myself. I am very aware that comfort is probably my greatest struggle that I don't battle. Like, I'm just admitting that to you. I haven't really confessed that to anybody individually. I'm just, I thought about it yesterday. I'm like, this is actually my greatest struggle in life, is I love comfort. And scripture tells me that's not okay. Not if your comfort is your circumstances, your comfort is your home, your comfort is your family's safe. That's not, that's my, my comfort shouldn't be in my family's safe. My comfort should be if my, if my entire family dies, I still have Christ. And that's all that I need. And that is the comfort of my soul and my heart and my mind. I mean, look at Job, lost everything. And did he go, oh, my life has fallen apart and now I have nothing. That was his wife's attitude. When she said, oh, well, there goes all the comforts of our life. Curse God and die. And Job's like, silly woman, no. And his response is, should we not, if we receive good from God, should we not also receive evil from God? And then it says that everything that Job had just said was true. And so Job's perspective is, it's not comfortable, but it's good. It hurts, but it's good. It's challenging, but it's good. Shakes my faith, but it's good. Challenges me to learn and grow, but it's good. To step out of my comfort zone and make relationships that I'm not used to making, but it's good. Christian life's never comfortable. So we have to go deep, because I want you to be uncomfortable. I want you to sit in these chairs, and I know not every sermon is going to challenge the heck out of you, and I know that not every message... You know, some will be easier and some will be harder. It just depends on the text. It depends on how the Spirit works. But the reality is we have to go deeper because you have to grow. Everyone has to grow. It's not enough to stay on the surface. We don't want to be biblical lily pads just floating along on the surface of our faith when elementary truths of the doctrine, of elementary truths of the gospel that even demons and unbelievers could confess Your individual growth into deeper and greater and more mature doctrinal truths is your evidence of salvation. We saw that in 1 John 3. And this is why we studied Hebrews 5 and 6, so we could see the marked difference between a false convert who is able to coast through their seemingly Christian life without developing sound doctrine and without maturing in their faith and without producing fruit. We can see the difference between that from the true believer whose faith grows first in the mind and then is applied to the heart and is acted out in obedience and righteousness. So we have to go deep. I have to change your paradigms about who God is. We have to grow. And if that's going to happen, you have to be here. So another truth that Paul is emphasizing is the value of that growth happening together. The pastor and the preacher and the teacher should, should know more than the people so that they're able to lead them and guide them and teach them what they would not have otherwise known. And then you can apply those truths and grow in your faith and, and then we can lead you to a greater desire for Jesus and a stronger, more convicted devotion to him. And the value is not just the truth that is taught to you, or that those truths are applied in my life and in your life, but there's also great value in the process, that's an important word, in the process of growing together. 
like a local body developing their doctrine together, united in the spirit, not in total agreement on all doctrines and truths, but growing toward them and working together despite differences. Remember, unity is not uniformity. Unity is, a, is, is our ability to come together despite differences and work toward similarities and work towards unity and work towards agreement. We'll never be in perfect agreement because none of us will ever be perfect. And if we do this, there'll be more satisfaction and more joy in Christ in the body, in you individually, in myself. And we will also express a more vivid expression of the gospel to the world. Nothing turns people away from the church more blatantly than division in the church. Christians fighting each other. Nothing turns people away more quickly than hypocrisy. And the reality is we're all hypocrites to some extent. We proclaim and believe a truth that we can't live perfectly. Of course we're hypocrites. And that's, what, that, that's, the, that's the joy of knowing Christ is that I can go up to God and be like, God, hey, I'm completely a hypocrite, but I don't want to be. And because I am, you saved me and made me righteous and you're working the hypocrisy out of me to make me more like Christ. So I become less and less hypocritical in the things I say versus the things I do. And I love this growth, God, so continue to work on me. That's why we have the church. So when people say, I don't want to go to church because it's full of hypocrites, my response is, that's the reason you have to go to church because you're a hypocrite too. And so are we. And if you join us, We could grow together. So the importance of this being put before, these doctrines being put before the congregation is that we learn them to gather and grow together. And Paul tells Timothy that that if he does this, if he teaches the church these important doctrinal truths, then he will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And what Paul's emphasizing here is the pastor's primary role, which is also told to us when Paul writes his second letter to Timothy. So 2 Timothy 2.15, we see really the the purpose of the, the shepherd's role. He says, do your best to present yourself to God, not to the church. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. So what does one approved look like? A worker who has no need to be ashamed. Ashamed of what? Ashamed of how they handle the word because he says, rightly handling the word of truth. So what we see here is the most important thing for a shepherd to do for the people and for themselves is to rightly handle God's word. My relationship to the Bible is the most important relationship in my life. Your relationship to the Bible is your most important relationship in your life. You were thinking, what, nah My most important relationship in my life is with my wife or husband or kids or even to the church. And you can say, oh, no, wait. Your most important relationship should be Jesus. Nothing else. Well, Revelation 19, 13, John 1, 1. Jesus is the word of God. This is Christ. This is Jesus walking with you talking to you every day. You carry this book around with you and the words of Christ himself are coming to you in a literary form instead of a vocal form. So it's not his voice from his human body, it's his voice from paper. This is the voice of Jesus Christ in your life. This is, your relationship to this is not about the book. It's not about the paper. It's not about the ink. It's about the truth that comes from it. And it's about the one who declares that this is true. This is your connection to Christ because this is Christ. So your relationship to the word of God is the most vital relationship you have in your life. So if you think about, and I've used this example a thousand times, you're in a relationship with another person, okay? Girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, whatever. Is, is, Is communication important in that relationship? Of course it is. If you didn't talk to them for a year, how would your relationship be? It'd be terrible, right? You wouldn't even have a relationship. Okay, so, so if we never get into God's word, if we don't hear from Christ and we don't talk to him in prayer, then how do we expect to grow? Your relationship to this book is the most vital relationship in your life. You have to stay connected. And, and, and so do I as the preacher, which is Paul's point here. How I handle the word of truth determines whether I present myself to God as one approved or one who's not approved. 
And you could say, so you have to go to God and know all these, is he going to give you a test on doctrine and you have to know it all? Do you realize that, that that's not true? Do you realize that, that scripture teaches us not just what to know, but how to do it and how to live it? And not only how to do it and how to live it, but that you have to do it and live it. So if you say I have good doctrine and you don't live your doctrine, you have terrible doctrine. Good doctrine is practiced doctrine. Or at least good doctrine is good, not, you have the knowledge of the doctrine and you're attempting to practice it. You're pursuing it. You're trying to achieve it. You're attempting to grow in it. Your attitude and your disposition, your heart and your mind about that doctrine is I want to develop in this thing. I just learned, you know, I just shared with you earlier uh, a little bit about the doctrine of joy. And you're thinking, okay, well, knowing that's one thing, but doing it's another. So I don't actually have good doctrine until I start practicing this. And so now I want to turn on the right attitude of I want to be a Christian who is far more satisfied in my life, regardless of circumstances, than anyone else I know. So I'm going to pursue joy every day. But tomorrow you might not feel it, but you're pursuing it. That's the point. And then you do as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. You beat my flesh so that after preaching I'm not disqualified. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, I have to teach one thing and now I have to, now I have to discipline my body. That's what he says. He says he's, he's speaking in the context. It's 1 Corinthians 9.27. He's speaking in the context of, he's given an illustration of athletes. And he says, I beat my body as a boxer. Like, like I, shadow boxing with myself. And what he's getting at is I'm going to discipline myself, my physical human body, and I need to discipline it so it stays in line with the things that I know. And then in Romans 7, he admits, I can't do the thing, I don't do the things I want to do, and the things that I want to do, I just don't seem to be able to do them. This constant tension and struggle. And the only thing that keeps us in line is the Word of God. This is the most important relationship you have. So we do need to handle it rightly. And we see Paul tell Timothy the same concept in our text today, 1 Timothy 4, 6. He says, being trained, he's talking about Timothy. If Timothy does this, this means he is being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Basically, Paul is saying that if you learn, know, and practice these doctrines, that's great. But additionally, you must also teach them to the people so that they can also grow with you. Do you guys even realize how many times I'm standing up here with a sermon written down on paper and in the middle of preaching, I've already done it twice today, in the middle of preaching, I start talking about something else that is not on my sermon notes because it's something I've thought about or discovered this week and maybe it's not even new, maybe it's not a new thing that I've learned but it's something that's just been on my heart my mind and then it comes out so it's from my interaction and relationship with God through Christ that I bring to you things to teach you. So what comes out of me is the product of what God is doing in me. And, and I think we would all agree, since all of you are agreeing to listen to me, which is displayed by the fact that you're sitting there quietly looking at me with your Bibles open and listening, you're agreeing to listen to me. So I think we would all then agree that I should know something, Right? I mean, if you needed your plumbing fixed, you wouldn't call the cable guy, right? And you wouldn't call me, unless you just needed someone to hold the flashlight, which I can do. Instead, you would call, what, a plumber, right? Okay, so if you go to church expecting to learn about the Bible, you expect the person who's teaching the Bible to teach the Bible, and you expect them to know what they're talking about. You expect the plumber to know how to fix your plumbing, and to do it efficiently and effectively. We got a garbage disposal installed in our uh, kitchen sink this year. And we bought it and I opened it and I started taking it apart. And I'm reading the instructions. I'm like, I can do this. I can do this. And then I start realizing that like there's this little element that I'm just like, this is going to be a lot to figure out. And I have a feeling I'm going to start this project. And I'm going to get it all together. I'm going to get to that point, And I'm going to have to wait till I get to that point to figure it out. And I'm going to realize I don't have this figured out. And I'm going to have a sink that doesn't work now. And it's going to be like Saturday night at 10 o'clock and I'm not going to be able to call a plumber till Monday and we won't be able to use this. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to call the plumber. And he came and he did it in like 30 minutes. In and out. Done. Just, it makes more sense to have someone 
who, who's practiced in a thing. And you expect that from me. And you expect that from Brian. And you expect that from Christian. Because it's our objective to give you those things. To give you truth. And to explain doctrine to you. And then, and then not only just to teach it to you. But then to hold you accountable to it. To live life with you. And to, to, to carry you along. To encourage you. To bear the burden of that challenge for you. And here's the cool thing. You reciprocate that by doing the same for us. Because though you've got people teaching you who are supposed to know things that you don't know so that they can teach you, like I said earlier, it would be foolish and arrogant if the teachers and the elders and the shepherds thought of themselves as better than the people. I am just as much a sheep to Christ as you are. There's nothing different about us other than different roles. Is your husband, wives, women, is your husband a greater human being than you? You don't probably even think in those terms, do you? You're like, I don't, I don't ever think about whether he's greater than me. Well, he has a different role than you, and that role is to be an authority in your life. So does that make him greater than you? No, it's just a different role, right? So I'm not better than you. I'm not greater than you. I'm not smarter than you. Like I said before, you guys have jobs that I couldn't do. So it's, it's not about that. It's about roles and God working through his word, And my objective is to be faithful to his word, to teach his word to you so that you understand it and know it. And then as you understand and know it, we can all grow together. And that will make me happy. And I know it makes me happy because it makes the Lord happy. So, in order for the church to grow together, the teacher must be growing. And he must fulfill 2 Timothy 2.15 and handle God's word correctly. And if he does, 1 Timothy 4.16, which we'll get to soon, says, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So there's a lot on the line here when it comes to teaching God's word and knowing sound doctrine. Now we've got this this phrase here, uh, words of the faith in 1 Timothy 4.6. And then we also have in 2 Timothy 2.15 that we just read, word of truth. They're both synonymous with the same meaning. They both mean scripture. So essentially it's the teacher's requirement that the teacher understand the whole counsel of God, all of scripture. Paul emphasizes this importance in Acts 20, 27 while talking to the elders in, in Ephesus, the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. This is the same guys who received this letter from this first Timothy letter. And he Paul says to those elders in Acts 20, 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So obviously all pastors and teachers and preachers do not fully know the whole counsel of God. Meaning they do not know everything. Right? I was saying earlier, scripture is inexhaustible. It can't be fully known and understand in, in, in a single lifetime. Even if you lived as long as Methuselah, 969 years, there's no way that any human being could ever exhaust the truths and the knowledge and the experience that we're supposed to encounter in the word of God. And even if you could understand and articulate all of the possible known truths in Scripture during one lifetime, even if you could do that, you would still have to live those truths perfectly in order to genuinely fulfill sound doctrine in Scripture. And that's impossible because we're all born into sinful flesh, conceived into sinful flesh. And so that is what makes Jesus' perfect doctrine and perfect life so remarkable. Is that he not only knows, can teach, is aware, and practices the entirety of God's counsel, he created it. So then why does Paul say that he did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God if the whole counsel of God is just unknowable ultimately? Paul doesn't mean that he clarified every single knowable detail in all of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we know that that's not, like, that's not necessary. I mean, that's true when Paul visited, but then he writes the first, first letter to the Corinthians. He writes at least three, if not four letters to the Corinthians. We have two of them. That is a ton of information. And so he teaches them way more than just, 
Christ and him crucified. He teaches them the whole counsel of God. So the whole counsel of God is a more succinct uh, teaching on the gospel and its doctrinal implications. It's more that than it is like teaching the entirety of all knowability in Scripture. So he's emphasizing that he's covering the entirety of Scripture to provide them with what is essential to, to know not only just to be saved, but to mature in sanctification. So I, I think about this all the time. Because as we're teaching Bible truths to you, I'm always, my brain is just running to all these different connecting points. And I'm thinking, should I bring up that? Should I bring up that? Should I bring up this? Should I bring up this? Because I want to bring the entirety of the whole counsel of God into the teaching so that you can see these aren't categorized or compartmentalized truths that are just separate from each other. All of these truths are laced together in Scripture. And I love seeing how they connect and they draw together. In fact, I have a hard time not making more connections when I'm preparing sermons. So there's, there's a great joy in, in understanding that all of Scripture is tied together. We see this in Luke 24 also with Jesus. I'm not going to go there because it's just too much, so I'm going to skip Luke 24. But we see Jesus do the same thing. He teaches uh, these two guys all the Scriptures from all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And clearly, and he did it all in an afternoon. And obviously, all the knowable truths in, in, in scripture can't be covered in one afternoon. So he just reveals that, that the whole counsel of God doesn't mean every single discoverable truth in detail, but that it, you know, it's, it's, it means teaching the entire swath of scripture from the big picture to the intricacies of doctrines. And because of this, the church in Ephesus had this from Paul. They had qualified and capable leaders to guide them doctrinally so that they could produce this holiness in the church. And that's my aim for you. And I, I say it's my aim for you because that's God's aim for us as a church. So, Timothy spent his life in Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. And that's sacred writing means Old Testament scripture. So Paul knows this when he's writing 1 Timothy and reveals it here in 1 Timothy 4, 6. Because he says, good doctrine that you have followed. So Paul's aware that Timothy knows doctrine since he was a child and is following that doctrine. So he already knows much of the words of faith and he's following those words of faith. And so now he's continued to grow in them. And Paul said something similar to the Thessalonians. The first Thessalonians, Thessalonians 1.6, he says, you already are imitating us and you're imitating the Lord. So he's encouraging them, like you guys are doing a great job. And then 1 Thessalonians 4.1, he says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God just as you are doing, so thumbs up, good job, great job, he says, that you do so more and more. So he doesn't let them off the hook. The Thessalonians are already notice, you know, already noticeably living faithfully to Christ and to the Word of God, and Paul doesn't let them off the hook and encourages them in their continued faithfulness. And though they have already grown in knowledge and, and practiced good doctrine, they must now continue to do so more and more. So, what does this mean to us? It means that the Christian life is never done. It's never done, which is why I said you're never com- you should never get comfortable. Never get comfortable in your skin. I don't mean that in terms of your security and your identity. I mean, never get comfortable in this world. Never get comfortable with anything from this world. Get comfortable with who you are in Christ and who Christ is and comfortable with the gospel. And get, get comfortable in things that can keep you comforted in uncomfortable situations. That's what we have to get used to. You're never done growing. You're never done learning. You're never done serving. You're never done loving. You're never done sacrificing. You're never done losing. You're never done being blessed. You're never done being promised. And you're never going to be done maturing until we are glorified. So regardless of how faithful you already are, we must have a long-term view of our walk with Christ. That our growth is never done and God's chisel of discipline never stops working because he never stops loving us. So he's always going to be disciplining us. Now granted, there are moments or seasons of reprieve, right? When we get to rest, 
from the hardships and challenges of growth. But keep in mind that rest is, is comfort in Christ, not comfort and rest from problems. We get a break from them and we get to rest in Christ. It's very different. I don't have time to explain all that, but, but there's a very different reality. And when we get that in those, in those down times, we've got to realize God is still working. Working out ways that, that are preparing us for what's next. And, and Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have finished the race. The Christian life is a race. But it's not a sprint. And we know this because Hebrews 12, 1 says, run, so we know it's a race because he says race in this verse, run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. The race requires endurance because it's a long-distance race, a lifelong race. And Jesus' life is the example that we're to imitate. And his endurance was a lifelong endurance. And he finished his race in the ultimate form of suffering and in the ultimate form of joy and satisfaction in God, which is why we are then encouraged just three verses later in Hebrews 12, 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Meaning if Christ is your example, then live out that example until all the way up to what he lived. And he lived his example to death. Which means in your struggle against sin, don't stop and think you're done. In your fight against temptation, don't stop and think you're done. You haven't died yet. You're not done. And if that temptation and fighting against sin and battling the enemy is going to take your life, then so be it. You're not done until your blood is shed. That is not a knock on those who are not martyred, and nor does it mean that martyrdom is a requirement for salvation or that martyrdom is a requirement for sanctification. That's not the point, not at all. The point is we should think martyrdom is the ultimate expression of faithfulness to Christ because I'm willing to give up the thing that's most important to me, me, for him. It's to show us that as long as we are alive, our aim is to be like Christ, to sacrifice daily every day until we breathe our last, following the sacrificial life of Jesus as our example and encouragement, even if it costs us our life. And here's the beauty. It's worth it. It is worth it. Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The hardships of this life that come from your faithfulness in Christ, though hard today, are worth the reward when your race is finished. It's worth it. I've ran a half marathon. I was like, I'm going to run a bunch of 5Ks. I did that. Finished them like, I could do more. I'm going to run a half marathon, and then I'm going to run a marathon. I ran my half marathon. I was like, yeah, that's it. I'm done. I don't, <laughs> I don't need to go any further. Marathon's way too much. Half marathon was too much. I'm not doing more. But I finished. I finished. I've never not finished a race. And you could be in the middle. I remember my half marathon. I'm running. It's at the, uh, uh, the Gandhi Dancer Trail. It started in Luck. And you run whatever half of a half marathon is all the way down this trail. And there's a cone in the middle of the trail. And you have to t run and just turn around and run all the way back. That's the whole race. And when you get to the cone, you've got to slow down. And when I slowed down and came around that cone, I remember being like, I don't think I can get back to the speed I was just at. I was toast. The moment I slowed down, I couldn't pick it back up again. It took me like two miles just to get like back into a rhythm again. And as I was trying to get that rhythm back, I am fighting and struggling. And I'm thinking, I'm never doing this again. In fact, I think a lot of, I'm running past people who are just walking. I'm like, I can do that. I'm just going to walk. And I was like, I can't walk. No walking. You will finish this race. And I ran and I ran and I finished the race. And guess what? When I got done, I was like, man, am I glad I didn't walk. Oh, I'd have to run it again just to prove myself I didn't have to walk. <laughs> so I'm like, there's no way I'm doing this again. I'm going to run and I'm going to finish. And it feels great to finish. It feels great to finish the way you're supposed to finish. That's the Christian life. And that's what, in Romans 8, Paul continues later to tell us that that is what hope is all about. Our knowledge and belief that what we endure today by the righteousness of Jesus in us will be our reward in the future. Like, what we go through today will be something that is worth going through it today. 
And that's our reward. And hope tells us that reward is worth it. That keeps us going. That provides endurance. Knowing, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, the joy that's set before us, the joy set before us is eternity with God. And only by faith can we weigh our hardships today against the reward and know with absolute assurance that these present sufferings are worth the future glory. And that is why Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Amen. Because I can only believe that by faith. And if I do, then my hope is sure. And if my hope is sure, because my faith is strong, and it's given to me and planted in me and kept in me by Christ, making my hope sure, then I can endure anything. So, Grace Church specifically, you guys specifically, though you have endured already and have seen it in a gazillion different examples, and though you have grown doctrinally and you have learned the challenges of following Christ and still you remain faithful, praise God for you and praise God for his work in you. And though all that's true, continue to run the race with endurance, knowing that your reward is worth it because your reward is Jesus. And if by faith you truly know him, then you know that he's the only reward worth living for and he's the only reward worth dying for. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and thank you. We pray that you would honor your word this morning and we would continue to run this race with endurance and faithfulness to you that that, that process includes and requires our growth and knowledge and doctrine which requires that we be in your word. Continue to sanctify us as your followers, as your sheep, as your people. Help all of us to grow doctrinally so that all of us are prepared and ready to teach Lord, that would, be, that would be such a great blessing to this church if all of us grew to the point where we were all teaching. That's, that's my hope for this church. That's my prayer. Be with us all, Lord, and thank you for bringing those kids home. Thank you for bringing them home safely. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.